But first, let's look at our text. It's in 1 Peter chapter 5. And this is Peter writing to the Christians throughout the portion of the Roman Empire. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Then Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. In our text, the Apostle Peter tells us to be sober, to be vigilant, to be watchful. It's interesting, he just got through telling us in the previous verse that we can cast our cares upon the Lord because the Lord cares for us. And the emphasis has been these last two Sundays, we've talked about God being a loving, caring God, a father, a shepherd, a husband, someone who really looks after our every need and even the most unlikely prospects and suspects are under his provident care. And that we can cast our cares upon Christ. Now he tells us we have to do our part. We cast our cares upon Christ, but we are not to just sit back and relax and realize that we are absolutely cared for in the sense that we are free of all responsibility. No, we are told to be sober, to be vigilant. This is an admonition which means to be alert, to stay awake. Jesus called for this vigilance himself in his public ministry over and over and over. Jesus would say something like watch and pray. He would say take heed. He would say be watchful, be vigilant. He gave several parables having to do with watchfulness, including that of the the virgins, the five foolish and the five wise, and other times. And it's it's noticeable that Jesus really did implore his disciples to watchfulness as the end of his ministry grew near. 
especially in the Garden of Gethsemane. He wanted them to watch and be vigilant and pray. And he talks a lot about watchfulness in the last day, in the coming of the end, the end time, the great eschatological day of the Lord that we are to watch and to be ready for that. The subject of Peter's admonition to us is that we need to be on the watch because we have a definite, dreaded, treacherous enemy. And that enemy is Satan. And Satan is a real being. Satan is not just an evil influence. Satan is not just an amorphous, ethereal ghost of evil. But Satan is a particular, real being. So much of what we understand about Satan comes from the New Testament. The Old Testament is more sparse in its instruction to us concerning the enemy. And a lot of our imagery and nomenclature that helps us understand things about Satan come to us right out of the New Testament, a tremendous amount of from the Apostle Paul. And not only that, all of the apostles, John and Peter as well, speak often of Satan or the devil. The word devil itself is used 37 times in the New Testament. The word Satan is used 36. And not only that, there's a half a dozen other names that refer to Satan. He is Belial, he is Beelzebul, Azalel, Abaddon, Apollyon, Lucifer, one we're very familiar with. It literally means a light bearer. The prince of demons or the prince of, of uh, principalities the prince of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the old dragon, the serpent. If you're going to doubt there's a devil, you just may as well go ahead and doubt there's truthfulness in Scripture. And while you're at it, go ahead and doubt the existence of God. Satan is real. We don't know a whole lot about him like we know about God. But we know that he is everything that Christ is not. Christ is the truth. Satan is a liar and the father of liars. Satan destroys. Christ is an edifier. He builds up. Satan is an accuser. And that's a legal term. A slanderer and an accuser. Christ is an advocate before the Father. Satan is the prince of darkness. Christ is the light of the world. Satan is a thief. He's come to steal. Whatever you have, he wants to steal it from you. Take it away. The Lord comes as the one who is the bestower of gifts, the giver of gifts. Satan is a murderer, a killer. Christ is life itself. 
Satan is the avowed enemy of the Lord. And when the Lord came into this world in the incarnation, the babe of Bethlehem, God, the infinite God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, planned and proceeded with a redemption, a salvation. Satan had already rebelled. He had already set himself against God in every point. He had already come and destroyed the earth that God had created and the habitat for humanity to enjoy and the blessedness of fellowship. He had entered the garden as the old serpent. He had deceived. He had challenged God. He had lied. He had caused the man and the woman to doubt God and to believe Him and to believe a lie and to sin. And in so doing, He had claimed the earth as His habitation. He's called the power over the kingdoms of this world. He's the deceiver of the nations. He has the powers, the principalities. He Himself is the general of an army of the demonic evil spirits and demons. And when Jesus came into this world, he was entering into the dominion of Satan. He was coming as an invading, conquering redeemer, a warrior, to win back by conquest and by battle that which belonged to him and to his father. And when Jesus came into the creation as a babe in a manger, he had entered the strong man's house. And the Bible says that you must first bind the strong man. The entire ministry of Christ was a war against the serpent, against Satan. The war had been symbolized in the Old Testament several times. There had been earlier victories that sort of told us what might happen. One of my favorite is the story of David and Goliath. We learned it all in Sunday school. We learned about the five smooth stones. We learned about the sling that went around and around and around and around. We learned about everything. But did you ever stop to think about What was really going on there? The Philistines, the most powerful nation on earth as far as the Israelites were concerned in that ancient land. They were the dominant. Even today we call it Palestine, which is named after the Philistines. The Philistine warrior had a champion, Goliath of Gath, a giant, a great warrior, undefeated in battle. And he was fully outfitted with armor and with sword and shield and spear. And he represented in his person everything that Satan stood for. He was the seed of the serpent. He slandered God and the armies of Israel. And King David, who was just a little boy at the time, 
probably a teenager, a youthful, inexperienced, young, but he knew the Lord. The shepherd boy had already begun composing the Psalms that would become the sweet Psalms of Israel. And he had an ear tuned to the majesty and the glory and the wonder of God. And when he heard that uncircumcised, filthy mouth, vile Philistine, slandering God, David was ready to go to battle. And you know the story well. But I just make one point about it. What did David do to Goliath? Besides demonstrating the superiority of ballistics over hand-to-hand -hand combat, <laughs> he crushed his skull. It's precisely what God had said that the Messiah would do to the serpent, would crush his skull. And I've mentioned this before, and I'll mention it again, perhaps not all of you have picked up this little factoid out of the Bible, but if you'll read a little bit more in the narrative there in the Old Testament, it tells you what David did. He went up and cut Goliath's head off and took it to Jerusalem. And the Bible says nothing else about Goliath's head except that we know that Christ was crucified and his feet pointed down to a place called the place of the skull. The symbol of the crushing of the head of the serpent. And one of the great things that's told us over and over in the scriptures that we have an assurance is that Christ is a victor, a conqueror of Satan. He came, Jesus said, I came to destroy the works of of the devil. But you don't destroy something without engaging in a battle. And the battle was a fierce conquest that took place all the way throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. When Jesus came to earth, he was on a battlefield and the terrain belonged to the enemy. And he came to save his people. And in order to do that, he had to come as an invader and endure a bloody contest and win a victory. And it never stopped. Satan started out here in the temptation narrative. We see challenging Christ and his divinity. If you are the son of God, turn these stones into loaves of, of bread. That never stopped. If you are the Son of God, come down off that cross. Jesus was challenged and opposed every step of the way by the vicious Satan. The Bible said that he misleads. Even Peter, who writes this narrative and tells us about in the gospel of Mark about the temptations and poor old Peter had to deal with Satan. One time he took up Satan's cause, tried to indicate that Christ did not really need 
to enter into the battle to the extent of going to a cross. And the Lord recognized this as one of Satan's lies that had made its way rather subtly into, Satan, into Peter's heart. And he said to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. On another occasion, the Lord just told Peter, said, Satan has asked for you. He wants to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And that's what the Lord is doing. That's what the temptations of Jesus really are all about. It's him coming and fighting off the father of lies with the truthfulness of God's word. And all these quotations in the narrative here in the temptations of Jesus are all from the book of Deuteronomy. And they're all taken. And my class that was with me last week in our study will know where they came from. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. They are direct quotations from that translation, not from the Hebrew text particularly. Jesus quoted to Satan. And when Satan decided he would quote scripture, he quoted from the psalm. And he misquoted. And he misapplied. And he perverted God's word as he can't help himself but do. And the Lord has fought a battle. That's how we have so many stories in the, in the narrative of Jesus' life on earth, how he, he cast out demons he was at war with the demonic and everything having to do with Satan and his minions. That's why the Lord constantly had to keep up a watchfulness lest He Himself in His humanity be overwhelmed by the wiles and the snares and the devices of Satan. The interesting thing to me in the temptation narratives is Something happened at the very beginning. You know where Jesus had been just before the temptation? He'd been baptized. He'd been in the Jordan Valley with his cousin, John the Baptist. He'd been in a revival meeting. He'd been hanging around with the best preacher of his day. Jesus' soul had been restored. He had really seen and heard that great appellation by John where he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus had fulfilled all righteousness by being baptized. He had been cleansed and, and ceremonially purified and ready for his ministry. And the Holy Spirit had descended upon him. And he had heard the Father say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And I can just the serpent coil up and say, I'll put a stop to that. He's the obedient son. He's the son that has come to please the father, to keep the covenant. And Satan meets him in the wilderness. The Bible says here, it's interesting, the language it's used, it said the Spirit of God drove Christ into the wilderness. Isn't that interesting? The Spirit of God, God's Holy Spirit said, we got to go somewhere, we got to battle, we got we to fight this first Opening battle of a war. Let's go. Let's go to, and, and, and the scriptures say it was a desolate place. Mark even adds in his uh, uh, narrative that the wild beasts were there. It was a scary place. And the Lord fasted. 
And at the end of the 40 days of fast, here comes the tempter. And we won't go into each of the temptations, but let me just sort of summarize them for you. Christ was tempted at the point of human appetite, hunger, in a desolate place where there was privation. And yet he would not do what Satan instructed him to do. He resisted. He was victorious. In the second temptation, according to the narrative that we read, there, the second and third one are reversed in the other narrative. Satan took him to a third scene, took him to the holy city, to Jerusalem, took him to the temple, but not just the temple, the large pinnacle, the large portico covering over the big wall that went down a sheer cliff on the east side of the temple. And he put him up there. This was a temptation for Christ to receive affirmation. Affirmation from his father that whatever he did, his father would take care of. Jesus probably had in his mind, cast all your care upon him for he cares for you. I'll just throw myself off the temple and the Lord will take care of me. He takes care of me. Also, it was a public place. There was always a crowd at the temple. Here was a place for Jesus to demonstrate that he was special. But in his humanity and in his humility and in his obedience, he would not do that which Satan pushed him to do. The third temptation was at the point of human ambition. I'll give you all of this, a panoramic view of the kingdoms of the world. All this, Satan said, I'll give to you. And Satan, for all practical purposes, was the prince of the earth. All you have to do is to honor me, give me homage, recognize that I am your superior. Temptations took place in a desolate place with respect to human appetite. It took place in a holy place, in a public place when it came to acclamation and affirmation. If Jesus had done that, if he had jumped off and been saved by the Lord, tempted the Lord in that way, he would have been a miracle child. Oh, they would have never stopped talking about that. He would have acquired a fame earlier and for different reasons than he was later to have a fame. But he didn't take that shortcut in pleasing the Lord. And the ambition took place in a high place. And it's something when you get a little elevated, you kind of feel like you probably belong there and you probably need to be elevated a little more. <laughs> ambition. Jesus was at a high place, tempted at the point of human ambition. And yet the Bible says that in each case, he quoted Scripture. Why would Jesus need to quote Scripture when he was full of the Holy Spirit? If you got the Spirit, you don't need the Word, right? Oh, <laughs> hardly. Both, always. And he quoted the scriptures. Let me just list briefly for you, if I can, uh, some of the significant things about this temptation of Christ. First of all, it was a proof of his true humanity. 
He had a real human soul. He was a real human person, a real human being. He was just as much human as though he were not God. Bible says he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. It also showed us his personal discipline. Christ had been a man of prayer and he continued to be. He was a man of the word, of holy scripture. He quoted Moses, he quoted the law. He lived by the words that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He's an example to us in the way we are to deal with Satan. In the final analysis, he realized he'd had enough and he ordered Satan to go. Be gone. It's interesting to me at the end of it, you got Satan leaving and angels coming. Boy, now that's the way Christian life ought to be. <laughs> Satan going and angels coming. The Bible said they ministered to him. Literally, they waited on him like servants waiting on someone who's hungry and needs to be fed. And they restored him. It set the table for his intercessory work. When we sin and we fall and we succumb to the temptations of Satan, it is Christ who is at the right hand of the Father being an advocate for, her, for us because he's been in that desolate place and hungry. He's been in that place of spectacle and needed affirmation. He's been in that high place and tempted to ambition. And he knows what it feels like. And he succeeded where Adam failed. In the final analysis, he's the victor in the great conflict. He is the obedient son. He is the new Adam. He's the one that came and kept all of God's law perfectly in our place and in our stead and on our behalf. We have failed. Like Adam, we failed. But Christ prevails, succeeds, and brings us. We are very familiar in our reform circles with the truth that our sin has been imputed to Christ. But are we equally aware of the biblical truth that His righteousness, His obedience, His perfections has been imputed to us? That we are reckoned to be obedient by the Father. One day we can hear the same voice say to us, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. All because Jesus did it for us.